Now, some people like ads, some people don't, and that's okay. But we like to keep everyone happy. So if you're one of the people who doesn't like to listen to ads, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And you can listen to this podcast just the way you like it. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. It is high summer. It is high summer, John. And this podcast is going to be a continuation of our European tour, John, but we're going to go to Poland. And for there's right. a variety of reasons we're going to go to Poland. Fascinating, huge country. But maybe one of the things that's always interested me was the fact that since 2001, 2002, Ireland has received in probably more Polish immigrants per head than any other country yeah. in the world. Yeah. With the stonewashed jeans. The stonewashed jeans, exactly, exactly. And the, at the peak just after the Celtic Tiger boom, because the Poles were involved in the building trade in the main, and there was actually even a character in the French election called the Polish Plumber, because the French right. didn't allow... It's an amazing thing. Ireland... Britain and Sweden were the only three countries that allowed Polish people to travel and work without visas. Yes. Right? In the beginning, Germany and France didn't allow Poles to, to work, even though they were in the European Union, because they were afraid of the impact on tradesmen in particular, of Polish tradesmen coming over. Was that and not was going big, against the EU agreement? It was, a, it was a caveat that France and Germany sought to insert because of the fact that Poland was a, a country of 38 million and Polish immigration could have an adverse effect on the wages of okay. tradesmen. Whereas in Ireland, we were in the middle of that building boom, and we just needed workers. So we absorbed them in. So, for example, even today, John, right, even today, 17% of the population of Mill Street, which is in North Cork, are yes. Polish. Are Polish. That's one in five. <laughs> and the other thing about Ireland is that the way in which the Poles settled is they settled all over the country. So they didn't just settle just in Dublin. Yeah. So what you find is large Polish communities. If you really want to know where there is a Polish community, you have to look through it. There's the Polski Schlep. You know, the, the shop. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Selling their Polish. So all over the country in Ireland, there are Polish people. And yet, we don't know that much about the country itself, about That's Poland. That's true. And, and again, you know, maybe we should, I've always thought that all these immigrants come into Ireland, their greatest, greatest value to Ireland as a nation 
and as an economy, are their networks in the places they came from? Because mm. the hardest thing to do is to do business in a country where you don't know the culture. Yeah. Whereas yeah, in yeah. Ireland, we have so many Poles, we've so many Romanians, we've so we've so many Spaniards as we talked about last week, we've so many Italians. We should be able to, or the state should realize that this is part of our human capital. This is part of our network. And you know, one thing that struck me, not only could we or should we regard these immigrants as actually salespeople, an Irish sales force selling mm. Irish products abroad, but also culturally, I've always thought, why don't we just give an option in school to learn Polish, employ Polish primary teachers, right? There Absolutely. must be loads of them. There must be I mean, loads of them. But it, it, that's, that's a, a brilliant opportunity for, for us, because, you know, we are notoriously crap at languages. It's embarrassing, and actually. It is embarrassing. And kids learn languages from other kids. That's yeah. what you notice, right? Yeah. So if you're in a school, I don't know, in Dunmanway in Cork or, or, or in Kerry or in Galway, and there's a whole lot of Polish kids who are speaking Polish at home, yeah. right? You know, give Irish people the chance to realize that there is a world out there and learning languages is part of a process of cultural assimilation. And nobody ever lost out by learning a language. In fact, there's an incredible amount of studies, scientific studies, that kids that are bilingual, right, are able to absorb all sorts of other information much quicker mm. because there's pathways formed in their heads, there's synapses kicking up in their heads that actually allow them to absorb all sorts. So, you know, that idea, you know, I always think that, you know, we're kind of static in the face of immigration, right? And you've got to see is immigration is an opportunity to do all sorts of things. And, and learning languages is one. And speaking of learning languages, John, yeah. Speaking of learning languages, as these last few podcasts have been an Irish person's tour around Europe, we're going all over the place and we're thinking about languages and culture and simulation and all sorts of good stuff. There was a great example last week of Ronan O'Gara's team talk to La Rochelle, en français, mais avec un accent très corco. How do you say cork people in French? Corcoise. <laughs> C'est incroyable. C'est incroyable. Écoute ça. Listen to it. C'était Léon ou Bordeaux, je m'en fucking fous. On joue Bordeaux, samedi, c'est comme ça. À Dublin, à The Outsiders. Samedi, on va favorite. Mais ton humour, ton performance, c'est dicté par le mec à l'extérieur ou c'est dicté par ici. Il y a tellement de choses de progresser dans cette équipe. Je m'en fucking fous d'adversaire, c'est ici. Est-ce que vous avez faim ou vous êtes intéressé de progresser Oh, I'm a fucking plan back on, Sandy. C'est pas possible, ça. L'opportunity, c'est fucking enorme. Mais on commence aujourd'hui à zéro. À zéro, on va créer l'énergie, l'état d'esprit, le sacrifice, toutes les choses on aimerait faire. Well, just trips off his tongue. So, Ronan, I'm telling you, intercert French, leaving cert French. It was a bit like, John, I remember, I bet you your French oral was a bit like that. Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the Duolingo at the moment, by the way. Are you? I am. Learning French. I'm telling you, ah, I'm telling you. I've just got the accent bit. I'm, I have to work on the words. Well, you know, it's funny you think about the accent. And this is, this is, this is going out to, to Ron O'Gara. I, when I was learning French years ago, I went to college in Belgium. And uh, the, the, the actual master's was half in French and half in English. And my French was really bad. I didn't, do, I didn't even do French for my leaving cert. Yeah, I did yeah. Latin instead, which is a ridiculous thing, right? And but somebody told me, and it was a really good piece of advice, if you want to learn French and if you want to speak French, do exactly what you're doing there, John. 
exacerbate, amplify the Frenchness, you know, overpronounce mm. everything excessively. So you sound like Inspector Clouseau, right? If that's the objective. <laughs> and, and they said it actually works and it does. So, you know, what you do is you try to actually envelop yourself in all things French. And you sound extremely lazette. Yes, yeah, yeah. And ça marche, ça marche. You know, you know, back in, was it 91 or whatever, I spent a summer in France, in Clermont-Ferrand, recording an album, and I hadn't a word of French when I started. And by the end of the album, like two, two months later or two and a half months later, I was talking high technical stuff Hulk, in French. French. Oh my God, I was amazing. <laughs> but I was just Hulk immersed in the whole French. thing. <laughs> Well, no, it's, it's true. It does get you. Well, listen, actually, I want to go back to John's summer in Clermont another time. Okay. Yes. <laughs> in uh, Le Massif Centrale. Okay, but no, let but... us go. Let us go. So listen, Rog, thank you very much for that. That was impressive. Unfortunately, it was a team talk for La Rochelle, who obviously kicked seven shades out of Leinster at the very end last year. So we best forgotten that. And yeah. I'm sure a monster man like Rog was, uh, it was a double victory for him. It's a double victory. Now, let us go. This week we're talking Poland, John. And a couple of weeks ago, I went to Poland. You remember this on my way to Kiev in May. And what I did in Poland was, you know, the way this idea that I like doing is I like going, if I arrive in my own in a city, going on cultural tours. And I went on a tour. If you're ever in Warsaw, there's a website called withlocals.com, which is basically an off the beaten track tour, right? So you're, you're not going to see I mean, the Warsaw Ghetto is very, very impressive and the Old Town is very, very impressive. But this was actually, you know, a slightly different tour. It was a guy called Marcin. It's called withlocals.com if you're ever yeah. actually over that neck of the woods. And it was a tour of Praga, which is a sort of a newish suburb, a sort of 19th century suburb. A fascinating story. So I got really deeply into uh, Polish history for about, I don't know, about three and a half hours, which now I've decided I'm an expert. And <laughs> but, then I, but then, of course, I got the train to crack you there. Exactly. <laughs> I got a high speed train to crack off. Okay, number one. Yeah. And I thought, wow, this country, you know. And then I got the train onto a, a place that's impronounceable, I think called Premishill. But luckily, our next guest will be able to pronounce it. Because many years ago, as you know, I worked in the emerging markets neck of the woods for that Swiss bank UBS. And it was like a sort of a circus of all sorts of odd bods thrown together, people with very eclectic interests in the world, <laughs> people who could speak Slavic languages better than they could speak their own, all that sort of bizarre thing, right? Yeah. All sorts of different refugees from all sorts of different places. And one of the lads who rocked up was an East European devotee, obsessive expert, James Oates, a Scotsman. And he turns up, and of course, we kid it off like that because the Irish and Scottish think straight away. James now lives in Tallinn, but is on the board of a number of companies in Poland, knows Poland back to front, has been stomping around that world for at least 20, maybe 35 years, it's fair to say, James, is it? And it's great to see you. How are you, James? I'm not so bad there, David. Yeah, it's a good 35 years. And it's Przemysl, so you know. Przemysl is the name of the town. Przemysl, yeah. I mean, and if you think that French needs a wee bit of an accent, yeah, Polish, Polish has the same problem. And uh, you basically need to go pship, 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 and that'll work it out. <laughs> John, you might remember, you might remember James, who was at our wedding. Not, yes, not, your, not our wedding, John, you and me. <laughs> <laughs> the only man in the kilt. The only yeah. man in, in Ramstone. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only man in the kilt. James, let's talk about Poland, right? An extraordinary country. Give us a little bit of the history in the sense that the Poland we know today geographically, 
is not what Poland was 100 years ago. Well, that's right. I mean, I once went to an old museum in London run by the government in exile, and the captain who was showing us around the exhibit said, you have to understand that Poland has not really got foundations. It's built on roller skates. So it kind of moves <laughs> it kind of moves around. And it does. And you know, it's been as far east as Moscow, more or less as far west as it is now. So it has moved around a lot. And and in particular in the twentieth century, I mean, first of all, it, it disappeared completely after the partitions of Poland in, in seventeen ninety-five. And so there was what the Poles called the Three Kingdoms. It wasn't a Polish kingdom, there was an Austrian Empire, a Prussian Kingdom, and a Russian Empire. And actually, the weird thing is you can still see the borders today. So it was divided up, and then it had to come back together again. And it's, it was quite a multinational place. I mean, you got people who, who came from what is now Ukraine, who uh, were extremely Polish, but they were all chucked out in 1945, every last one of them. And they went to what was Germany. So cities like Danzig or Stettin or Breslau suddenly became well, once again, in the view of, of some a thousand years of Polish history, Szczecin, Wrocław, Dańsk. And so they literally brought with them the statues from the cities that they were expelled from, which is what we now call Lvov or Vilnius. Uh, so these are big Polish populations, so they moved around a lot. And Poland was a multinational country, and now it isn't. It's a massively, completely Polish country. Now, some of that is to do with the fact that, you know, the very large Jewish community was murdered. But also, you know, the Germans were expelled and the Ukrainians were expelled and the Poles were expelled from Ukraine, Belarus and, and Lithuania. So it is a country that moves around a lot. So what we're talking about is, is a country that when geopolitics shifts, Poland shifts. Yeah. And it can move west or east. And the Polish people who used to live in Lvov now live in Poznan or what we used to be called Breslau. Yeah, Breslau. And, yeah. and those German people who used to live there now live in West Germany in the main. Yeah. Yeah. And That's the Ukrainians right. who are now living in Lvov, where did they come from? Well, they came from the countryside around Lviv. So what really happened was that the, the cities and towns in that area uh, were Polish-speaking. But the country districts weren't. And that's why Stalin decided, though, no, this is going to be Ukraine and, and, and Belarus. So it was a massive patchwork. But now it's not. And, and that's the extraordinary thing about Poland. It's gone from being this sort of very multinational, multilingual, multicultural, and multireligious also, uh, to being basically Catholic, full stop, and Polish, full stop. And, you know, in a weird way, you know, some of the national questions of Poland mirror mirror those of the Celts, especially of Ireland, because you've got a kind of political struggle that was backed by the church against, in the case of Poland, most of its neighbours. And so you've got a whole wacky um, history, which is, as you rightly say, it's geopolitically driven. But things have changed quite a lot, because Poland is not a small place, as you found out. I mean, yeah. it's it's got, you know, 38 million people. Economically, it's been growing incredibly fast for an amazingly long period of time. So it's gone from being a pretty screwed up place that was still toiling to integrate the different parts of the country from 1945. And it's ended up now with new infrastructure, a whole redesigned economy, and it's really quite a modern place. You know, it's kind of the, the eastern side of Europe's answer to the, to the tiger. This is what I want to focus on. 
before we do that, before we, we focus on the economics, I want to talk about the, the sort of sociology of the place, uh, because those borders have shifted, but people's attitudes remain the same in terms yeah. of what was conservative and what was liberal. Explain that to me, because that is kind of fascinating. Well, yeah, I mean, you can literally see from voting patterns where the old German territories were, because they're the ones that tend to trade with Germany. The, the population may have come from the east, but they've ended up being more integrated into the west, and they're more dynamic economically. Whereas the eastern side of the country, which is under the control of the more nationalist party, is still, relatively speaking, it's more backward. So the infrastructure that was left behind after the borders moved, it's being integrated and it is being modernized across the board, but you can still see where the boundaries were. I mean, I, I occasionally drive down there and there's an area uh, which is now finally being dug up, but you can, you can see where the cobblestones stop and tarmac begins. That was the old German-Russian border. Um, so you, you know, it it really is an incredible thing. And yeah, the attitudes are on the Western side are funnily enough, more Western. And that's where the, the economy has been more dynamic. That doesn't mean that the Eastern side is not dynamic. It's just dynamic in a different way. It's still more agrarian. And of course, you know, the reality is if you live next door to Germany and you're exporting to Germany, you know, you grow faster than if you live next door to Ukraine and you're exporting to Ukraine from Chemischewe. (laughs) Shemichel, <laughs> where I spent where I spent a long time, and actually, I was I was writing about the interesting thing about in Shemichel, you've got to wait for this train to Kiev. And what really struck me, because it was obviously all Ukrainians, and what struck me about displaced people, you know, there's a lot of absolute trauma and inconvenience seen. But somebody asked me what it's like to be, and I said, the thing that strikes you most about displaced people, I want to talk about Ukrainians in a second, is the waiting. Yeah. waiting for trains, waiting for buses, queuing up to get a visa, queuing up to get an entrance visa, queuing up with a passport control. You have no kind of sovereignty over your life. You're dependent on other, other people like the UNHCR were at the border and everything. And it just struck me that that's one of the things when people are displaced, one of the powers that you lose is that ability to control your own life and control your own world. And I'll talk to you about that in a sec, but let's talk about this dynamic Economy. So I, I, I arrive in Warsaw, go to bed, wake up. I haven't been to Warsaw for about 25 years. My God. And I am in an extraordinarily dynamic city. Yeah. So explain to me what's going on in the economy because it is growing. Because, you know, we have now 130,000 poles in Ireland. We had at one stage 250,000 poles in Ireland. Most of them have gone back. Tell me why they're going back. Tell me about the economy they're going back to. Well, they're going back to an economy that has continued to grow for 27 years. It's never actually been into recession all that time. So the economy is now six times larger, nearly seven times larger than it was in 1990. And that incredible growth rests on the creation of a service sector and modernization of infrastructure and the development of really good up to the minute industry. Now, you, you talk about the refugees. There are 3 million Ukrainians in Poland right now. I mean, you walk around Poland and you hear Ukrainian or Russian and nearly as often as Polish in some places. But they've been able to bring them in. So there's a real determination to support the Ukrainians because their view is, well, that'll be a great opportunity for us when the war is over. But the economy rests on Lesha Borisovich, Balsarovich's, um, he, he chose a radical transformation. 
So what Poland did was they didn't try to do it smoothly. They just basically went straight to a modern economy as quickly as they could. They privatized quickly. They solved a lot of their labor problems quickly. And yeah, quite a lot of the pressure actually that could have come from unemployment was relieved by the fact they all turned up in Britain and Ireland uh, because they were the first countries that allowed the Poles to travel before they joined the EU. And so the combination of the EU, of investment, of a really dynamic investment environment. I mean, when we first went to Warsaw, I mean, there were three tower blocks. There was the Stalinist wedding cake, the Palace of Art and Culture. Which is still a gorgeous look. The, was it it's, the Dom Kulturi, isn't it? The Pałac Nauki Kulturi. And it's got a clock on it now, which it didn't have before. <laughs> so they, they modernized this thing. And it had a couple of other things. And, you know, uh, there was the Brigada Mariotsky, the guys who were, stayed in the Marriott Hotel, which is kind of next door. And opposite that, there was the Electrum Building. Uh, so three sort of tower blocks. Now, there's probably over 200. I mean, as yeah. you saw, I mean, you know, you've got something that looks like a Midwest American city, especially because Warsaw's on a flat plain. You can see it for miles. And the incredible numbers of new towers. And that's reflective of a real dynamism, that these guys have actually, they know how to work, and they're not frightened about work, as I think a lot of people in Britain and Ireland know very well. So the, 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 that they, they made a wee bit of money in Ireland. They brought it back. They've not just bought houses. They've set up businesses. So there's a real sort of entrepreneurial spirit that the, the Balsarovic plan released. And that's why it's so exciting. And it's, it's pretty incredible when you look at the numbers. I mean, I mean, as an economist, you'll know that all the numbers are lies. But the truth is... Well, as I always <laughs> say, is every statistic has an agenda. Yeah. And the issue is, of course, you've got now motorways and they don't lie. You can't interpret whether a motorway is there or not. So you've got, you know, it's noticeable when you cross the country coming down from the Baltic towards Germany, you've got brand new highways. And then you get to Germany and they're not brand new. They're kind of twisty and kind of scary. Uh, So they've really jumped a generation in terms of of infrastructure and that's including telephones and and internet and everything else so they've caught up with what western europe was doing and in some places they've overtaken yeah well i mean it it, it feels like that when you're there it feels that that this is a country that has skipped a generation or two in terms of development yeah (laughs) i have grainy memories of the imposition of martial law in poland in 1981 i think it would have been Around yeah. Christmas time. Yeah. Uh, I've also, a lot of Irish people have grainy memories of John Paul II being Polish, and that was seemed to be significant at the time that he was Polish. Lech Walesa was also, these are these are kind of generational memories. But the idea, the country that I visited the other the other week is is extraordinary. And there's one thing that really struck me. One of the themes of the last couple of weeks traveling around Europe has been certain countries have managed to still have substantial cities outside of the capital. And it seems that the Poles have that too. They have, you know, it's not just all Warsaw-centric. They have a lot of Absolutely big cities not. which are very autonomous. Yes, they are. I mean, it is it is quite a, um, a dynamic environment away from Warsaw. You mentioned Lefoyensa, and of course, Valencia kind of gave Balsarovic the, the mission, should you choose to accept it. He said, I want you to turn fish soup back into an aquarium. Is that what he said? That's what he said. And this line has been used a lot. And and you see 
they broke up the state bank, the Narodowy Bank Polski, the National Bank of Poland, into local banks. So there was a bank in Dysk, in Wrocław, in Szczecin, and so on. And the one in Poznan was bought by uh, AIB in the end, Wielka Polska Bank Kreditowa. So yeah, the, yeah, with, with our tax money. Thank you very much. Yeah, and thanks, thanks, Arda, for that. Yeah, it was great. Um, and the message, though, actually, it worked out pretty well for AIB. I mean, Arda, not so much, but Poland, very much so. Because the reality was that the growth of these places was really rapid. And so you got people locally who were able to make really quick decisions. And they did. And, you know, you didn't have to muck about. So Poznan particularly ended up as one of the wealthier parts of Poland these days. And it's the home of one of my favorite beers, Lech beer, not named after Voyasa, but, you know, hey, it's still worth a drink. And it's, and it's only a stone's throw, really, from Germany. I mean, it's, it's only, what, 100 kilometers or 50 kilometers, probably, from, uh, yeah, from Frankfurt yeah. and Oda. Yeah, I mean, you can you can get there in an hour. Now, James, let's say, so does Poland from 1990, let's say, to 2022, February the 24th, and that Poland was a big Central European state in NATO with a well-behaved neighbor called Germany on one side, a slightly complicated relationship with Ukraine on the other, a reasonably well-behaved Russia just over the border again past Belarus, right? Then on the 28th of February last year, that all changes. And Poland is now at the fulcrum of yep. a European war. Explain how Poland, how this has changed Poland and will change Poland for at least the next decade or two. Well, sociology is kind of interesting because when you get 3 million refugees turning up on your doorstep, you know, you can either go kind of negative on that, or you can go positive. And polls have gone really positive. They've welcomed the Ukrainians. They've supported them. Actually, you don't need a visa to cross into Poland. So although it's a, the usual chaos of borders, the reality oh, don't worry, is... I've done, it, I've done it twice. I've done the five-hour yeah. wait in the bus. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, remember borders. Like, what, what a thing. So the sociology of Poland is that it was moving in quite a dynamic economic way, but there's also issues in terms of social policy. Particularly the church was was quite sponsoring of the populist end of the political yeah, spectrum. Yeah, explain, explain to me where this comes from, because I don't think, and again, it's one of those things you always see that if you have economic growth, if you have a higher standard of living, these tend to go together with a cocktail that biases itself towards liberalism, right? And tolerance and openness and all this. The polls have gone the opposite way. So Catholicism is back. If you thought Catholicism was gone, it's back in a big way. It's very much enmeshed with the ruling party or the party in power. So explain that before we talk about Ukraine and geopolitics, explain that sort of conservative, liberal, urban, rural divide in Poland that we see so evident now. Yeah, I mean, in a way, Polish politics kind of mirrors some of the things that you used to see in Ireland, because you don't really have a liberal party as such. You have a kind of social nationalist party, which is the piece, the current guys. And then you've got a kind of liberal conservative fraction, uh, which is the civic platform, which is now forming a little coalition with the Greens and calling itself the, the, the civic coalition. Now, those are the guys who wrote the original economic plan, and those are the guys who became big heroes in the EU. So Donald Tusk, who was the chairman of the European Council, was the longest serving 
prime minister of the Serbian Republic, so since 1990. Now, he's back. And in the interim, the social conservatives, the nationalists who are, who are in, the, in government, have done several things that have created a lot of social tension, I mean, one of which is to really restrict abortion and to be very negative on LGBT rights. The other is that they have actually tried to attack the judiciary and have been somewhat successful in that. So there is a big dispute at the minute between Brussels and Warsaw over how the current government has approached what they want to call judicial reform, and which a lot of people want to call judge nobbling. And in the middle of all of this, suddenly there's a war. So there was a concern, actually, that the nationalists, like many nationalist parties across Europe, were actually closer to Putin than you might want to think. Well, actually, Mateusz Morawiecki, who's the, the prime minister, has, has been absolutely on side for Ukraine in most things. I mean, they tried to save their farmers by stopping the import of grain into Poland. That's created a bit of tension. But other than that, I mean, the, the Polish defense spending is now at 3% and rising rapidly. And the thing is that the Polish army is actually a really good one. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people have got a bit nervous about the Belarusians flying their helicopters over Polish territory. I'm here to tell you now, if there was anything serious that the Belarusians try, the Poles would be in Minsk in a few days. I mean, the Belarusian army, even with the Wagnerites, isn't going to cause any trouble for the, for the Poles. They comply with everything NATO. They've got really good kit, and they've got a fighting spirit which terrifies you if you, <laughs> if you get amongst them. So you've got a complicated situation in Poland at the minute. So geopolitically, Poland is now more important than ever. You look at Europe is shifting. There's a whole sense of frontier states up against Russia. Poland is the most powerful one. It's the most populous one. It's the richest one. It's the most technologically advanced one. And in, in many ways, historically, it's got all the reasons to fight as well. Because there ain't no love loss between these two, the Russians and the Poles. And, the, and the, you know, the Russians have done unspeakable things to Polish particularly middle class, officer class, the Kachin yep. massacre, all that stuff. We know yep. all that, right? But it also has this internal sociological divide between liberals and conservatives, which yep. is real. It also is on a collision course with the EU over what they call judicial reform, or you said judge nobbling. How does it all play out? You know, because, well, and you've got 40 million of them. This is not a small country. Oh, we're 38, yeah. And uh, the, the short answer is we're going to find out pretty soon because we've got the election in October. So in a few months, the opinion polls are really tight. So it's a very tricky situation for the current government. No government in the Third Republic has served more than two terms. Now the peace government is trying to try for a third one. And, you know, the reality of that, I think, is going to be a very close election. And that's despite the fact that the media is kind of under the control of the peace, I mean, or at least the state media is. Now, as far as the situation geopolitically is concerned, I mean, uh, you know, Germany and Russia were equal enemies of Poland. So the, the joke is, you know, so which one do you want to fight first? The answer is always Germany because it's business for pleasure. <laughs> so, and, you know, there, there's no question that the Poles and the Balts have been calling the alarm for quite a long time. You know, this invasion did not come out of a clear blue sky. The Poles have been deeply concerned about what's been going on, and so are the Balts. And it's only now, I think, that countries like Germany inside the EU are going, ah, oh, wait a minute, yeah, you might have been right about that one. And yeah. it's caused a lot of confusion. 
in the political classes in Paris and Berlin that Warsaw isn't actually a bunch of nutters. They were right um, because you know the temptation is oh they're just a bunch of backwoodsmen and and you know the peace government doesn't help itself. Most of them don't really speak other languages because they're the ones that didn't come to Ireland. So the the guys who are challenging to get back power under Donald Tusk again, you know, they could just do it, but you know it's going to be quite tricky because you've got the two big blocks, the civic platform, and you've got the the justice and law party. And the question about who wins is it's within three points. So it's going to be what coalitions yeah, it's can form. Extremely tight. It's going to yeah. be extremely tight. Now let's just look at finally before we go. So you have Poland and Ukraine a very strained relationship over many hundreds of years and, and a function of that moving borders we start to talk yeah. about at the, at, the, at the very top. You have Poland and Germany, which has now got a very good relationship, but historically has got a very disastrous relationship. You have Poland and Russia, which has always been a disastrous relationship. It's always been an antagonistic relationship. Poland is now going to become NATO's superpower in Central Europe. And as you said, with an army and a populace, that is up for the scrap if it has to, unlike Germany's, for example. Do you see European sort of spheres of influence just moving increasingly towards Warsaw and away from the Parises of this world over time? I think that's already happened, don't you? I mean, the reality is that you couldn't get your opinion into the European Council very easily from the East. And now, it's almost the first thing that happens when they start to discuss this. You get the European Council and the, the leaders of different governments, and the first thing is, so what does Kaya Kalas say from Estonia? What does Mateusz Morawiecki from, from Poland say about this? So at least I think you've got a much more open mindset from the Western parts of the EU. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the, when you're right, that right then, you know, it would be stupid not to accept that the polls have, have, have made the right decisions. Now, it's going to be interesting because, of course, if the civic platform does come back into power, well, I mean, Donald Tusk knows all of the leaders of the EU, and he personally has a, a political brand which is immensely powerful. That combined with the economic realities of Poland today, you know, the amazing growth, the open economy, the discipline, the focus on, on getting it right, that, that puts Poland in a pretty good situation. Now, we don't know how long this war will last. I mean, it's, it's clearly not gone well for Russia, that's for sure. And, you know, ultimately, it's hard to see that Russia ends up with an enhanced power. But I'll tell you one thing, Poland definitely ends up with enhanced power as a result of this. James, we will leave it there. Great to see you. Thank you so much for that. Great to see you. And I'll Pleasure. see you again soon, hopefully. Look forward to it very much so. 
Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Another fascinating guest there, Mac. Uh, James, is, James is a sweetheart. He's a really interesting man. Yeah, and what I realized as you were talking there and something you said at the beginning is actually how little I know about Poland, about its economy, etc. You know, when yes. you're talking about this great leap forward, as it were, the kind of generational jump. And what I loved was that quote, you know, turning fish soup back into an aquarium. Brilliant. <laughs> it's, a, it's amazing. Well, I think, you know, it's a whole fascinating part of development economics, which is that because of technology, technology allows countries make technological leaps that weren't there in the past. I'll give you an example. You take a country like India is going to take years and years and years to lay fiber optic cables, to put in a telecom system, all that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then suddenly overnight, because of 5G, they do it straight away. They do it in a totally different technology. So 5G technology allows poor countries to skip two or three generations of technological and infrastructure investment to go on to a higher growth plane. And Mm. this is what we're seeing all over the world, which is, you know, that the old countries, and and I'm talking about France and Britain and Germany and the United States, right? The old, very, very wealthy countries are finding it very difficult to understand how new countries are coming up so quickly and so fast. And then one of the reasons they're coming up so quickly and so fast is they're actually making technological leaps. Another great example is, think about, you know, the Khan Institute, you know, that teaching mathematics on YouTube. Yeah, this yeah. is bringing Harvard graduate level mathematics to anybody who has a internet connection, right? All over the world. Yeah. So suddenly you're seeing this leaping forward in education. And what the polls have done is they've leaped forward in technology. So rather than do what a lot of other countries, and it's an extremely, extremely contentious issue because the polls went for what they call the short, sharp shock, right? They liberalized everything. And a lot of people will have said they should have done things much slower because the social cost of liberalizing too quickly after communism was this total destruction of income of a whole generation. Now, what happened to the polls is they emigrated. Yes, they they had a kind of a safety valve to come here and to go to the UK and and work and, you know, and send money back as well. But but, but what is proven is that it's worked extremely well for them. And I also think what happens is they benefit from scale and size. You know, size is very, very important. So the the similar country in Central and Eastern Europe, if you want to call the, the whole region that it's a bit liberal, would have been Yugoslavia, you know? which yeah. also had about 30 million people, was a huge economy, made all sorts of stuff. But that broke up into its constituent parts. And all these smaller countries in Yugoslavia now have found it very, very difficult to actually put the pieces back together. Mm. I think the same as Czechoslovakia. You know, it splits between Czech and Slovak. It takes a while for these countries to find their feet, whereas the Poles always had this coherent Poland. Now, yeah. it, as James said, it was never geographically in the right place. But since 1945... That coherent Poland was one big mass, and that has helped them. But they have done extraordinary things. And when you go there, John, you should go there. I was there once. I, I went to Krakow many years ago. 
which I thought was a fantastic place. But, you know, you're in and out in the weekend, so you don't really get to see it. But what I was going to say that there is an interesting parallel as well with with Ireland in the same way as uh, we kind of jumped a, a generation Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. And not only did we jump a generation, John, but we actually changed our capital, our industrial base completely in yes. one generation. Yeah. So we went we went from being a beer and biscuits economy, right? Basically, Guinnesses and Jacobs. They were the two yeah. big industries in this country in the 1930s, right? If you think of it, at, at independence. And then we were faffing around trying to figure things out. And then suddenly it's like, oh, Americans, multinationals, let's do that. That's our trick. And the Poles have done the same thing. And in a way, all that Western part of Poland that James is talking about beside Germany basically has become an outsourcing area from German manufacturing. So basically what the Germans have done is they've taken the Polish industrial base, which was always there. And the interesting thing about communist countries is they tended to have very well-educated industrial bases, Mm. right? And what they've done is the Germans have taken that. Capital has gone from Germany to Poland. Polish labor has fused that capital and created goods, which they sell back to the Germans. So it's a sort of a virtuous circle all the time. And what James is saying is the eastern part of Poland is more conservative. It's more nationalist. It's beside Ukraine, beside Belarus. But what the western side of Poland is doing, it's kind of dragging the eastern side westwards all the time. And this sort of conflict at the heart, I mean, again, it should be not unusual for Irish people. You know, those conflicts that we had in the 80s between religious people and non-religious people, between conservative and liberal, even geographically between urban and rural, young and old, all those sort of fights are sort of playing out in Poland. But what I think James said, and this is the conclusion, is that here we have a country that at one stage had borders that reached as far east as Moscow and as far south. It was all the way down south into the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, right? For many years, it disappeared completely. It then got divided by the Nazis and the Soviets. The country got squeezed in the Second World War. It shifted its axis after the Second World War and bits of Poland that were in Ukraine became Ukraine and bits of Germany that were in Poland became Poland. People moved around. It settled itself. It found its feet. And now it's nearly 40 million people smack in the center of Europe. And I don't think Poland will ever be anything other than a major European country from here on in. And that's a big shift. So if it's a major European country and a growing power within Europe, how's that going to affect the power structure within Europe? Hugely, John. Shifting away from France, Germany. Hugely, hugely. I mean, you know, at the beginning, at the fall of the Berlin Wall, the fear on the part of the Western Europeans was that Europe would, particularly Germany, would tilt towards the East. There's this German expression, drag nach Austen, which is the drive to the east. And this has always been a difficult part of German history. This is idea that on the one hand, you have the more Slavic orientated Prussian side of Germany, uh, which Mm. was totally destroyed in the Second World War. We kind of forget that what was actually destroyed in the Second World War of Germany wasn't the Ruhr land and the Rhineland and Bavaria and Baden-Württemberg and all those Western areas, right? It was actually the Prussian side, you know, we we get that East Prussia extended all the way out, like all the way into what is now modern Russia, all the way Kaliningrad, all the way into uh, Ukraine, all those places, right? So that gets destroyed. And there's always this sense that Germany will flip 
and go more Eastern. And that was, France was very, very worried about that for a long time. And Britain was worried. It has taken the war in Ukraine to make that a reality. That's the interesting thing, that nothing is the same after the war in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine is a European changing moment. As a result of that, what you have now is you have the Baltics and the Scandies are all now in NATO. So they're tied to the hip to Germany and Poland via NATO. You have a situation where the Ukrainians want to join the European Union as quickly as possible. What Putin may well have in effect guaranteed is that the European Union stretches at some stage in the future from Galway to Kharkiv, from Galway to Donbass, yes. in one straight line, yeah, except for the yeah. UK. So you go around the UK, right? Okay. <laughs> if you think about it, so, so it's from yeah. Galway to Donbass. And as it shifts to the east geographically, the center of gravity also shifts to the east. And the center of gravity shifts, therefore, from Brussels to Warsaw. And the countries of the East become much more, not dominant, but much more reflective of a pan-European idea. And that's why Western Europeans need to understand the Slav mentality, the Eastern European mentality, what makes these people tick, what their languages are. And I come back to that at the top. We need to learn their culture because their culture is going to be much more significant to us in the next 20 years than we ever thought imaginable. And in Ireland, because we have so many Poles anyway, and Lithuanians and Latvians, you know, they're right beside us. They're our neighbors at this stage. So what we're advocating, John, the podcast is for intercert Polish, right? <laughs> yeah. Intercert Polish exams and intercert Russian exams and, you know, all that. But no, seriously. Intercert Duolingo out. Polish. Hey, absolutely. We're going to have a test now next week. <laughs> Me orals. <laughs> exactly. I'll talk to you later. Good luck. Talk to you next week. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.